to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19. I was sitting in Ruby Tuesdays up in Brewer this week, waiting for my car to get fixed across the street, and meditating on and working on the, the message today. And suddenly a story came to mind that, that my mother told me years ago of a friend of hers named Johnny Mel. Johnny Mel. She worked with him in Christian ministry, and they were in their 20s mid-twenties at the time. And, and when she was in her mid-forties, 20 years later, she looked him up and, and he was working at Xenia Seminary in Pittsburgh. And so he, she went to visit him. And he was in his office and, and she came in and they embraced and they talked and, and my mother was her usual self, you know, just talking about the Lord, how the Lord was challenging her, how the Lord has blessed her and Lord this and the Lord that, Lord this and Lord that. And at a, at a, at a pause, Johnny Mel leaned into his desk and said these words, I can't believe that you're still as excited about the Lord as you were 20 years ago, Sandy. I wish I was. My mother went on to, uh, this was an email, and my mother went on to tell me about another friend she knew in her early Christianity named Bob McGowan. Bob McGowan. Bob, she wrote, was on fire for the Lord, and he and his wife, went abroad as missionaries. Then she wrote a sad coda to this email. She said, Somewhere along the line, Bob abandoned the faith, much to the shock of many of us who knew him. He died about ten years ago, far away from home and him. kind of having the same reaction I did a couple days ago in Ruby Tuesdays. I I don't know Bob, but I just started kind of crying in Ruby Tuesdays, right next to the salad bar. (laughs) I didn't know him, but it broke my heart to hear how he started out so strong. He was a missionary. He didn't finish the race. And because of that, Bob died far away from home and far away from Christ. That is the heart, this this kind of brokenness, this, this spiritual sorrow is the heart with which this text is written. The author writes to brothers and sisters in the Lord who are considering doing what Bob McGowan did. And with a broken heart, he warns them about the dangers of dying far away from home and far away from him. Look with me at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion 
on the day of testing in the wilderness. Fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold on, hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those that heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father God, circumcise our hearts today with your word. Break us down only to build us back up in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 19, is actually one thought unit. But I'm breaking it down into three sermons. Last week was Consider Christ, verses 1 through 6. Consider what Christ has done. Today we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19 under the title, Consider the Consequences. And then we're going to look next week at chapter 4, and consider the future. Last week, the author implored us to consider Christ. When life gets tough, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. When you're going through difficult times, consider the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember what he has done for you. Keep your mind focused on that when circumstances are messy. Because the only hope in life and death is found in Jesus Christ. That's his, con- that's his conclusion. And if you reject that, you must remember, consider the consequences. That's what he's saying here. Consider the consequences. These verses are the first of three extended, pretty serious warnings in the book of Hebrews. The other one is in chapter 6, and we'll encounter another one in chapter 10. And the tone of each gets progressively more serious. And the warning here is, beware of your hard hearts that will keep you 
from entering eternal rest. Beware of your hard hearts because they'll keep you from entering eternal rest. And that is terrifying. I spent most of the week under this, feeling the weight of it. It's terrifying. And my natural first question is, okay, hard heart bad. So what is a hard heart? What are the signs of a hard heart? Father, Psalm 139, you know, shine the light on my heart so that I might not sin against you. Help me root out these hard-heartednesses. And what are the signs of a hard heart? As Dustin explained so well two weeks ago, the psalmist uses Psalm 95 to, to describe the, what a hard heart looks like. Two weeks ago, he, he explained the first half of the psalm that I used in our prayer today. The psalmist begins in 95, exalting Yahweh as creator of heaven and earth, of creating everything. And then he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Because he's not only creator, creator of nature, but he's also the creator of us. If you remember that. He deserves all our praise, all our honor, all our devotion, all our love. We should never, ever harden our hearts towards him. We should never, ever reject him. Any, anything, he says, we should accept. Yet that's exactly what the people of Israel did in the wilderness, is reject him. The rest of Psalm 95, as quoted here in Hebrews, verses 7 through 11, recounts what Israel's hard heart looks like. Recounts what a hard heart towards God is. Even though God delivered them, even though he showed kindness and graciousness towards them for 40 years, even though he provided manna every day and water when they needed it, even though God guided them physically through the desert, through cloud and fire, they presumed on his grace and grumbled against God. Those are the signs of a hard heart towards God. That's what defined that generation. I mean, if you go back and you read, you know, a little bit of Exodus, Numbers, a little bit of Deuteronomy, you get the impression that this, this was a defining characteristic of that generation. Grumbling. Complaining about their situation. Grumbling about God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. Putting God to the test again and again, saying, God, prove yourself to me and then I will follow you. That's putting God to the test. Prove yourself to me, God. They did that again and again and again. And the author of Hebrews is saying, these are the signs of a hard heart. Doug Wilson writes, complaint is the flag of ingratitude. And it waves above the center of unbelieving hearts. Complaint. 
A hard heart in scripture is basically shorthand for unbelief. Unbelief. Not trusting God. And not trusting God is spiritually serious. It's spiritually dangerous. We don't usually think of complaining as all that bad, do we? We complain about the weather. In fact, we delight to do this, don't we? I was in Southwest Harbor um, hardware store, you know, just at the register. And what came up but the weather? There's something strangely delightful about talking negatively about the weather, isn't there? Isn't that weird? It's how we start conversations. It's, it's actually, I think I thought about this, it's actually... My relationship with some people in town is based on weather. Because I just see them and that's all we talk about. We grumble about our jobs. Not interesting or challenging. Not enough money. Not enough work. Too much work. Too busy. Too slow. We complain about our bosses, our co-workers, our employees, our customers. We complain about our spouses. Not, en- not home enough. Home too much. Not tidy enough. Too busy. Not busy enough. We grumble about our local church, don't we? Service is too long. Not enough music. Not enough prayer. Too many elements. Sermon too long. Doing too much of this and not enough of that. I like small groups. I don't like small groups. We should be evangelizing more. No, no, no. We should be discipling more. We should be praying more. Fewer potlucks. Not enough potlucks. More money to missions. More money into the building. Not enough money into the building. Elders are too weak. No, no. They're too strong. Not enough direction. Too much direction. All this grumbling doesn't seem so dangerous. It seems pretty harmless, pretty innocent, pretty innocuous. But if we look at the example that the author of Hebrews is using, we get another picture of that, don't we? It's serious. See, these little seemingly innocent grumblings were really directed at God. I was reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 51 of his sin, right? Uh, The terrible thing he did in his sin with Bathsheba. And he doesn't say, ah, how I sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab and all these people. He doesn't say that. He says, against you and only you have I sinned. See, sin is always directed at God. Yeah, we hurt other people, but that's kind of, you know, damage along the way. tells Moses over and over again in the wilderness that it's not him they're rejecting, but who? God. And that's what grumbling really is, a rejection of God. 
At its root, it's not trusting God at that precise moment. It's not trusting him that at that precise moment, he is pursuing your good. That he is concerned and loves you. It's unbelief that God is actually sovereign. And that I know better. Each complaint is a little drop of unbelief. I want you to hold that image in your mind for a minute. A little drop of unbelief. Do you know how quicksand is made? Quicksand is not made by dumping a, a, a bunch of water on a sand and clay mixture. How quicksand is made is little water added incrementally to that same ground over time. And over time, that sand-clay mixture becomes quicksand, drip by drip by drip. Scripture tells us and likens our journey as a pilgrimage on a pretty narrow path, doesn't it? That's how it describes it. And paths back then were basically sandy dirt. The image I want to paint for you is that each complaint, each discontent, each grumbling is like a drip of water on your path. And if there are enough of them, over a long enough period of time, your path becomes quicksand. And you don't make it to the celestial city. That's the way the author says it in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. A continually grumbling heart is serious. Grumbling over the long haul is incredibly dangerous. Because it hardens your heart and causes your path to become soft. Causes your path to become quicksand. Preventing you from continuing on in your pilgrimage. Ultimately preventing you from entering God's rest is what the Hebrew says. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us crushed there. I do want you to notice, you know, I took this out of my sermon, but I do want you to notice the first words there of our text. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. You know, it's not just the author of the Hebrews. This is God himself telling us this. The Holy Spirit does not want to leave us there. He goes on to tell us three ways to keep your heart soft towards God. Scripture is exceedingly helpful. It just doesn't crush you and leave you there. It always gives you hope. So I want to lead us through this. What are signs of a softened heart towards God? Softening a hard heart. And they're basically contained in verses 12 and 13 if you look there. 
says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I want you to look at those first three words of, of verse 12. Take care, brothers. The NIV says, see to it. The King James says, heed, brothers. The author is saying, brothers, be aware of the tendency of your flesh. Be self-aware. Watch yourself. Know that grumbling is the, the tendency of your heart, of my heart. That's, my, that's why some relationships I have in town are built on grumbling. Jeff Mannion, in his book, The Land Between, writes this, The heart drifts towards complaint as if by gravitational pull. Can anybody relate to that? After all, complaint seems a reasonable response to a sequence of disappointing events. Generally, you don't have to extend an invitation for a complaint to show up. It arrives as an uninvited guest. You return home from yet another frustrating day to discover the complaint has moved into your guest room, unpacked its luggage, and has started a load of laundry and is rooting around in your fridge. Even as you seek to dislodge complaint, you move its bags to the curb and change the lock. It crawls back through the guest room window. Complaint resists eviction. Isn't that true? So we have to take note of the words the author chose to repeat in Psalm 95. Look at verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We have to watch ourselves today. We have to be careful and monitor ourselves today. We have to be self-aware about this tendency, this gravitational pull that is so spiritually damaging today. And resist the temptation to put those little drops of water on our dusty paths. That we think that no damage can come from that little teeny drop of water I just said. Nothing. But grumbling starts to define you. Secondly, look at verse 13. The author says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those last six words is what I want us to focus on here. Hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. Be aware, be cognizant that sin hardens your heart. We have to recognize the effect of our spiritual disease on us. Because we've all in Adam rejected Christ, we all inherit this sinful nature, this flesh, hearts of stone. 
That's our natural born state. That's our natural born proclivity is to sin. That's the water we're most comfortable in. And what the author here is saying, sin hardens our heart towards God. Sin has a cumulative and desensitizing effect on our conscience, making that sin easier the next time. Eventually making it almost impossible for us to realize that something is wrong. This is what Paul is talking about when he writes to Timothy in his first letter in chapter 4. Sin hardens hearts. Sin cauterizes hearts. Sin sears your heart, your conscience, so that you begin to think it's not sin. Has anybody ever had that, that blessed realization where you're doing something and all of a sudden you go, or you're saying something, you're something you've said over and over again and you go, the Spirit breaks through and makes you realize that's sin. Sin deceives us into thinking what is right is wrong and wrong is right. Considering a man contemplating leaving his wife for another woman. The sin seems so alluring, so right, so justified in his mind. She is so much more wonderful than the, than, than the plain old wife he's grown tired of. The other woman admires him, laughs at his jokes, builds him up. His wife to him seems nothing but nagging, nagging, nagging. The man begins to believe the other woman would be better for him. Despite the taboos, despite the atomic bomb mess that it's going to create, he begins to think how much better off and how much happier he'll be with the adulteress. He begins to believe that people... People will understand if you just give them time. They'll see what I see. They'll get over it. They'll see that the other woman is much a better fit for me than my wife. He even starts to believe that his children will ultimately be glad for him. This, of course, is a massive deceit. Massive. And and perhaps you know men or women that have gone down this path. And the author of Hebrews wants us to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. It's one of its characteristics. It looks good. It advertises pleasure, but always gives you pain. It plays to our deceitful hearts, our hearts, our Jeremiah 17, 9 hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and cannot be trusted. Do you believe that about yourself? 
The author wants us to be well aware of sin's deceit and our proclivity to believe it. As Richard Phillips put it, we cannot trust our hearts. My desires are not trustworthy. And the wise man comes to realize this. And therefore seeks the scrutiny and exhortation of brothers and sisters in the Lord. And there's our third help. Be aware of the community's role. Be aware of the community's role in help keeping your heart soft. Look at verse 13 with me again. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is probably one of the most, at least from my perspective, my experience, probably one of the most neglected means of grace in people's lives. The community of faith. It's put there to keep your hearts soft, brothers and sisters. It's a means of grace. Your local church is a means of grace in your life. Stuart Oliott in his commentary writes this, To continue to persevere in the faith, it is essential that we should join a fellowship of Christian believers. Within that fellowship, we are to get close to others. We are to allow them to get close to us. We are to constantly encourage and admonish them to go on, and on in the things of God. And they are to do the same to us. We're not called to stand on our own two feet. Our hearts are way too deceitful for that. Others may spot things in our beliefs and lives that need correction. We are to put ourselves in a position where they can notice these things. And we are to humbly receive what they say to us and act on it. This is what it means to exhort one another, to live in community, to, to live a life that is open for exhortation. Look at my life, please. I feel like Henny Youngman here. Look at my life, please. See, we may, we may believe something doctrinally that's wrong. And we need correction. We can be deceived by sin in an area of our lives and we can't see it. We think it's right. And a brother or sister will come along and say, Dear, dear Blake. We can think we're pretty self-aware. And if you're anything like me, you think you are. I know myself. And you don't. You have huge blind spots in your life that only another brother or sister who loves you will dare to talk to you about. Here's the toughie. You may think you're a Christian. And you might not be. And you need a brother or sister to walk you through the gospel. I think that's what verse 16 is telling us here. 
Not, don't have time to unpack this. I will in a later sermon. For those who were heard and yet rebelled, was it not all those who left Egypt with Moses? All went through the Red Sea into the wilderness, but not all made it out. A profession does not always mean possession. That's the parable of the seeds and soils, isn't it? That's Jesus. And that's serious. And wouldn't you want to know, you know, before you all get all hot and bothered here, wouldn't you want to know before you stand before Christ? Wouldn't you? That's why Scripture encourages community so fervently. That's why we have such a high view of membership here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church. Because we believe it is essential to persevering to the end. It's essential so that we can know and be known, so that we can speak into each other's lives with truth and gentleness and love, so that we can correct others and be corrected, so that we can tell others when they're being deceived by sin. As Mark Dever said in that video, we're, we're created to have the lights on, the lights on us, the lights on others. It's foolish to drive at night without lights. And so many Christians think they can do that. You can't. You need the local church. To resist being in deep, intimate community of a local church is like driving at night with the lights off. Paul Tripp, Sunday School, wrote a book called Whiter Than Snow, and he says this, we aren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. Our lives were designed to be community projects. Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. We defend ourselves to people around us who point out weaknesses and tell them they're wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resource that God has given us. Pause to think about it just for a second and it'll make sense. Think of Scripture. Think of right at the beginning in chapter 2 in Genesis. What does God say when looking at Adam? Let's say it together. It is not good for man to be alone. It's just not. He sets this trajectory right from the beginning. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. A little later on in the book of Hebrews, he's going to come back to this idea in chapter 10, and he's going to say, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another every day as long as it is called today. He keeps coming back to that today, doesn't he? It's important now, not tomorrow, not I'll get to it in June, not 
I'm not going to join the church. I'll do it at a later date. Now. And by the way, you don't join. You don't have to join this church. Join a good gospel preaching church up in. And I can recommend a bunch in Ellsworth. I can re- recommend a bunch in Midcoast, Maine. I can re- recommend a bunch up in the county. It's about being in intimate community, that means of grace that helps you persevere to the end. Think of Elijah leaving Mount Carmel, going into the desert to sulk. Think of David alone in the desert. He writes about the dangers and the loneliness. Think of Jesus. He didn't want to be alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember? He said... Peter, James, John, please. Come with me. And in that garden, he struggled with the consequence of going to the cross. That was his struggle. Let me just lay out to you two struggles he was struggling with. He was, of course, probably out of many, he was, of course, struggling with taking the wrath, the full wrath of God on himself. He knew what was coming. He knew that your sin and my sin needed to be paid for and that God was angry at sin. And Romans tells us even that it is stored up. Oh my goodness, could you imagine? And it was going to be meted out on him. And it says that he sweated blood over those kinds of consequences. Thinking about that. But he also struggled in another area. He struggled with the thought of being alone. Of being separated from his heavenly father. He'd never been alone before. Because the definition of hell is being alone eternally. Eternal separation from God. That's the definition of hell. Eternal aloneness. That is a wage of the hard heart. That's how a hard heart gets paid. It's said several times here and in different ways. You can look in verse 11. It says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 19, same thing. We see that they were unable to enter the rest because of unbelief. Here he's putting hell in terms of, of not being at rest, not entering the promised land. In verse 12, he puts it in terms of falling away. We read that one. Take care, brothers, lest any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, you fall away from the living God. In verse 17, he puts it in terms of death. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? See, the wages of a hard heart is never making it to the promised land. The wages of continual grumbling is death. The wages of unbelief is never making it to heaven. 
and being eternally separated from God, being alone forever. And the Bible says that that's the trajectory that every person is on who's ever been born. It's on that trajectory. That's what Romans 6.23 tells us. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's what Isaiah tells us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. There's no one good, no, not one, Paul tells us. That means that every person will pay the wages of their sin, which is death. That will be separated from God forever, alone. Unless something is done. Unless something is done. Something was done. Something was done about that. God, in his kindness and mercy, looked down and saw the situation that we were in. The hopelessness, the despair. He saw the trajectory of aloneness and darkness that every person is headed towards. He knew that we could never make it to him, so he came to us. That's what the gospel is all about. It's God coming to us to solve a, a problem that we can't solve. To change a trajectory that we can't change. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how many good works we think we do, the good intention we are, the philanthropy, we can't change the direction. Only one person can, and that was Jesus Christ. He came and he lived a perfectly sinless life that the law demands. A little later on in Hebrews, we're going to read that and when we get into him as the high priest, that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin. And he pay, paid the penalty that we deserve. He went to the cross and, and he did take the full weight of God's wrath on himself. He allowed his body to be broken. This is, what we're, this is why we do this, is to remember the amazing grace we have in Jesus Christ. He came and died the death that we deserved so that we could have the life that he earned. He stayed in the wilderness and died so that we could go into the promised land. He allowed the door to be shut on him so that it could be opened to us. That's what this table is telling us again and again and again. And if you believe this, this table is for you and it is a table that not just reminds us of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, but it reminds us also of, of the sin that he took away and paid for. And that should bubble up in our heart incredible gratitude. That should, that should trump the grumbling that we're also tempted to go into. That's why over and over again 
he'll come back to that theme of consider Christ. Keep your mind on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. When you think about grumbling, think about Christ. Don't put that drop of water. Think about Christ. That's why we do this every week, so we can think about Christ. It's not about the what we do here. It's not about religion. It's so that we can consider Christ and what he's done for us. I'm going to invite the elders and elder candidates to come forward to distribute the elements.